welcome to 1867 and all that season two episode 12 newfoundland at last so far this season we have dwelt almost exclusively in the province of canada detailing the tribulations and insecurities of the canadian political system there is a a genuine and, and defensible reason for this after all the main impetus for a wider union of british north america started with the canadians Many other British North American politicians talked vaguely of wider union, but it was the Canadians who, by 1864, urgently sought confederation to solve their problems. Now, though, we need to turn east. George Brown and Cartier and MacDonald and several others are about to set sail up the St. Lawrence and crash a party in the sleepy capital of Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. But we need to play a quick game of catch-up to understand the lands into which those Canadians were sailing. This week and next week, we'll start with the islands, with Newfoundland and Prince Edward Island. As some of you probably already know, we're choosing the two colonies that won't sign on to the Confederation deal in 1867, at least not initially. So I like the idea of giving them preeminence as historical what might have been and also just to cover places with fascinating and often overlooked stories. These colonies on the Atlantic were not just replicas of each other waiting for the Canadians to come knocking. They had their own internal dynamics and fixations, healthy and and unhealthy. The questions they will ask the Canadians will ultimately be, what can you do for us? Is your solution our solution? And initially at least, and in the case of Newfoundland for a long time, The answer turned out to be no. Let's take a look at why. Of all the maritime colonies of British North America, Newfoundland stood alone and apart from the others. An island in the far northeast, it looked both inward and out to the sea and had almost no reason to think that the solution to its problems could come from a link to the other continental North American colonies. The lives of almost all Newfoundlanders centered on the ocean and the cod fishery, either as fishers or shore workers or for the mercantile class, as those who provided the capital and trade networks to fit the whole industry together. The colony lived and died by the fate of the fishery, though locals also relied on a lucrative supplement in the form of the seal hunt. They could fish in the summer and hunt seals in the winter months. By the 1850s, the population of Newfoundland had already outgrown the fishery. That is, there were simply too many people and too many boats to offer more than a meager existence for most in the colony. This was all made more precarious because the colony simply did not have the kind of arable land to allow for anything more than meager, small seasonal crops, and so the colony depended on large imports of food. Even so, There was a a somewhat thriving mercantile class centered on the capital in St. John's, the merchants who outfitted and offered the capital by which fishers could exist from season to season. To say that this was an economic system rife with potential for resentment would be to put it too mildly. The residents in the outports came to resent St. John's merchants as much as, and probably in direct relation to, the extent to which they depended on said merchants. Oh, and then we need to add to this recipe a large dash of one more flammable ingredient, religious and ethnic division. 
the population in Newfoundland was almost evenly split between Irish Catholics and English Protestants. And the mercantile class centering on St. John's and Conception Bay was largely English Protestant. As you can imagine, the politics of the colony were heavily spiced by these kinds of religious tensions. There was almost no mingling between groups through most of the colony, with communities sparsely spread out along the coast. It was only in the more populous Conception Bay region on the east coast and in the capital of St. John's that groups lived side by side and where real problems developed. All of these divisions could be handled in a kind of paternalistic form until, that is, the introduction of responsible government. The colony only received its first representative institutions in the early 1830s. Around the same time, the Patriot were beginning to seriously demand constitutional change in Lower Canada. But the big change came in the mid-1850s. One by one, following Nova Scotia, other colonies in British North America began to demand and then to receive responsible government. They wanted their own assemblies to control government, at least in local matters in the colonies. But this presented a particular problem in Newfoundland, both because the colony was so small, but also because it was so heavily divided. When in 1855 the British finally conceded to responsible government, the reformers, or liberals as they were called, soon came to dominate the assembly. And they did so largely, though not entirely, on the power of the votes of the many Catholic voters from all around the colony. This is another example of how a franchise that even ostensibly had a property qualification actually allowed for a broader franchise than you might initially expect. In Newfoundland, if the qualification had been set too high, it would have excluded almost everyone, given the relative poverty of most in the colony. So instead, the voting qualification was set to be essentially be a householder franchise, allowing one vote for each man in every household. The Liberals immediately took charge of the Assembly. It didn't help that some local church leaders viewed politics as just one more branch of theology, as being just as much in their ministry as catering to the spiritual needs of their parishioners. Two powerful Catholic bishops in succession through the mid-19th century took it upon themselves to orchestrate political alliances and to almost openly direct their parishioners for whom to cast their votes. Now, I can't obviously cover all of the history of colonial era Newfoundland in a single episode, so what I want to do is tell two stories. One provides a, a dramatic tale of the kind of political flavor of division in the colony at possibly its worst moment. And another is a story about the one issue that maybe, just maybe, could have lured the colony into the arms of the Canadians. Let's start with petty politics of division and violence. We're used to it by now, though it's actually a tale of how things can sometimes get worse just before they get better. This is the story of the 1861 election. The election took place because the colony's appointed lieutenant governor, James Bannerman, couldn't help himself from interfering in colonial politics in a, a rather brazen fashion, and one not at all appropriate for a responsible government. Bannerman was a longtime colonial governor. Before Newfoundland, he'd been in the Bahamas, and before that in Prince Edward Island. He was, incidentally, just as partisan there. Some have suggested that Bannerman was a man who rose to prominence because of the good advice of his wife. That is, 
He was something of a lad, not particularly quick on his feet, and so apt to blunder into difficult situations that should have been avoided. Wife number three, two previous spouses had already died, usually kept him in check, but perhaps this time he didn't heed her advice. When Bannerman arrived in Newfoundland in 1858, he entered a scene where a Liberal Party dominated a very small House of Assembly consisting of only 30 members. Shortly after Bannerman came on the scene, the Liberal Premier left office to take up a post in the colony's Supreme Court and was replaced by a dynamic and long-standing reformer by the name of John Kent. Kent seems to have been quite accomplished, but he was also something of a demagogue who could divide just as easily as he inspired. Bannerman, the governor, and Kent, the new premier, don't seem to have got on very well. This should not have mattered a good deal because Kent and the liberals, supported as they were so stridently by the Catholic population and the Catholic hierarchy, should have been secure in their seats. However, in that security, perhaps depending too much upon it, the infighting began. Conflicts arose between native-born Catholics and Irish-born Catholics, and between the bishop in St. John's, a man by the name of John Mullock, and the Premier Kent. Secure in their ascendancy, the Liberals soon found that they disagreed over any number of small political matters. But the issue that presaged the crisis in 1861 had to do with patronage and relief. The early 1860s saw a series of economic crises. Trouble in the cod fishery primarily, obviously a major problem when the whole economy depends upon a single staple. And what's worse, the failure of the potato crop. Many locals depended upon this small bit of farming, especially potato farming, to supplement their livelihoods and their diets. Something had to be done, and so the government was called upon to offer relief. What followed, though, was an almost comical fight over how it was to be delivered. Who should be in charge of distributing relief to the needy all over the colony? Should it be done by some centralized authority to do it efficiently? Or perhaps it could be handled at the local level by members of the assembly who could also, conveniently, use relief as a kind of patronage to cement political loyalties. To the bishop, Mullock, the government was behaving irresponsibly in allowing these political considerations to enter the equation. This wasn't the only issue, but it gives a flavor of the kinds of conflicts and infighting we're dealing with here. Then, in February of 1861, came another more significant crisis over an issue seemingly even smaller. This had to do with which currency the government would pay salaries. Salaries, that is, which went to Governor Bannerman himself, as well as to judges and others. Kent's government decided that they would pay salaries in the local Newfoundland currency and not in British sterling. The local currency, it needs to be said, of course, was worth less. The governor was furious, as were others who received these salaries, and they criticized Kent. Kent then went on the record in the assembly, alleging that the governor was conspiring against the government. Governor Bannerman was deeply offended, so what did he do? Well, he went and conspired to overthrow Kent's government. He spoke to the leader of the opposition in the assembly, the, the Protestant conservative leader Hugh Hoyles, and asked if Hoyles would be willing to form a government. Hoyles said, well, I, of course I would love to do that. So. Bannerman dismissed Kent's ministry and invited in Hoyles. Now, 
all of this was more than highly irregular and not the sort of thing that ought to have been happening in a responsible government. Oh, and there is that niggling problem, the one where Kent and his liberals still controlled a majority in the assembly. The new Hoyles government promptly fell and the governor called for a new election. From England came a note from the Duke of Newcastle. Remember, he was the, the guy touring North America along with the Prince of Wales just the year before. Well, Newcastle essentially uh, tells Governor Bannerman that the whole thing is a mess and the only real cure is success. That is, if the Conservatives win, they can probably manage to overlook the governor's misbehavior. But if the Liberals come back into power, Bannerman is toast. And that is what set up the most violent election in Newfoundland history. Now, in most constituencies, everything was smooth as can be. That's because the population was so divided between the two different religious groups. So in many areas, liberals and conservative candidates ran unopposed. But in the Conception Bay area, the groups mingled and things got messy. Bishop Mulloch began to immediately patch up relations with Kent. It was one thing to have internal Catholic divisions when Kent was in power. But if their divisions meant the coming to power of the Conservatives, Bishop Mulloch was ready to backtrack and reform the coalition again. The problem, though, was that on the ground there were divisions both between Protestant and Catholics and also between native-born and Irish-born Catholics, and these still created incredible resentment and rivalry. And when the bishop wrote a public letter exhorting Catholics to take sides and not allow the Protestant conservatives to govern, he only inflamed tensions more. Mulloch equated the governing liberals with all the principles of Newfoundland civilization. He warned parishioners that if they rejected his advice on essentially who to vote for, quote, you will deservedly be the tools of unprincipled schemers and the slaves of a ruthless faction who have always, when they could, crushed you and hope by dividing you to do so again. Not to be outdone, the Anglican bishop was just as outspoken in favor of the conservatives. So yeah, so much for a divide between church and state. In the election that followed, violence erupted in two areas, uh, which returned a total of four seats to the assembly. The outcome of the whole election depended on these four seats. In one area, which was expected to return two liberals, there were many rumors of impending violence. And so Governor Bannerman exercised more than a liberal share of his own prerogative and shut down the polls, essentially preventing the election of the two liberals. Then, in the riding of Harbour, Maine, things turned deadly. Four different Liberal candidates faced off against each other, two slates of candidates from rival factions. Crowds from either faction met each other in the streets in bouts of violence which left one man dead. In the aftermath of the violence, the governor refused to allow any of the four men to take their seats. What this meant is that late in May, when the Assembly reconvened, the Conservatives held a slight edge in the number of seats, though there was that little matter of the remaining four seats. Two of the candidates actually showed up regardless and attempted to take their seats, but the officials had ejected them. Now this didn't go well because outside the assembly, a crowd of about 2,000 supporters had gathered and they didn't take kindly to this news. 
When the governor exited the assembly, he was greeted with a barrage of shouts. And not just that. Angry residents hurled stones at the governor as he escaped in his carriage. Then, when the conservative members tried to leave the assembly house, they had to ask for an armed escort. The sight of the government members being escorted by armed guards infuriated the crowd, who began to turn violent, attacking property around the town. The troops attempted to quell the riot, but no sooner had they managed to disperse some rioters before those rioters escaped up one road to turn around, come down another, and join the crowd again. The violence that followed ostensibly hinged on a shot fired from someone in the crowd into the soldiers. At this provocation, the troops ranged themselves against the riders, loaded weapons, and opened fire. As you would expect, the consequences were horrific. The shots left 20 members of the public injured, including a priest. Three died outright. Now, at this point in the chaos, Bishop Mullock seemed to realize that events had turned too radical. He rang the bells of his church, and it was this that finally drew away the rioters. In the aftermath of the riot, all sides seemed to pull back. It helped that the season was just changing and the cod fishery was opening. Everyone turned their back on politics and returned to the one essential feature of life on the island, making a living. Yet, it also seemed to be even more than this. Although some continued to bicker over the events that transpired in the by-elections to come, the new Premier Hoyles took to heart the lessons of undiminished partisan and religious bickering. He had already included one Catholic in his cabinet, and he reached out to others. Bishop Mullock also seems to have pulled back from the more extreme measures his rhetoric had promoted. The election of 1861 ended up being a turning point. After the next election in 1865, governments would move to have representation from all of the communities in the colony, Protestant, Anglican, Catholic, and Irish Catholic. It was a lesson that the Canadians, forced together in the Union since 1841, had already learned about coalition building across religious schisms. When the Newfoundlanders eventually considered the Canadian scheme for union, they were meeting men who knew about the hard lessons of sectional division. The problem was that none of this changed the fact that Newfoundland looked to the sea and not inward to the continent. They had their own divisions and their own priorities. What could the Canadians possibly offer that would entice them into the union? There was one political problem that colonial unity might assist in solving. This was the perennial hindrance of the French shore. What is the French shore, you ask? Well, a Newfoundlander at almost any time in the 18th or 19th century would have said it's a pain in the ass. It referred to the fact that way back in 1713 in the Treaty of Utrecht, when the French had finally conceded that Britain had sovereignty over Newfoundland, the British nonetheless allowed for French fishers to continue to fish in certain Newfoundland waters, and most importantly, to come ashore to carry on the kinds of activities that were needed, picking up water, drawing fish, and other matters. Initially, this right related to the northern coast of Newfoundland, but this was then switched after 1783 to the region on the western side of the island. Remember that France retained, after the Seven Years' War that ended in 1763, 
control over two islands along the southern coast of Newfoundland, Saint-Pierre and Miquelon. In fact, they still do today. You can visit France by taking a short little ferry ride from Newfoundland. The sticky bit of all this was, did the French have an exclusive right to that shore? Or was it, as the British, and especially the Newfoundlanders believed, merely a right to use the shore alongside and at the same time as the Newfoundlanders? This dispute had been ongoing for well over a century. But by the 1850s, more and more Newfoundlanders were heading to the western side of the island and attempting to use the shore. Disputes arose as fishers met in the wild, tempers flared, and all of this took on international significance with British and French naval vessels acting to settle disputes as they arose. All of this came to a head in 1857 in the aftermath of the Crimean War. In that conflict, Britain had fought alongside France against Russia. Taking advantage of the good relations between the two countries, France and Britain had attempted to come to some kind of agreement over this persistent problem of the French shore. But this only worried the locals. When news came to Newfoundland about a kind of agreement that the two countries reached, Newfoundlanders reacted with indignation. The treaty conceded too much especially the long-contested idea that French fishers had exclusive use to parts of the shore. At another time, Britain might have been fine to overlook local concerns, but Newfoundland had just one responsible government. Even though officially signing treaties was still very much in the purview of British authority, Newfoundlanders felt they should have a say in something that so clearly related to their own interests. Newfoundland's local government demanded that Britain sign no treaty with France that didn't first get the approval of the Newfoundland Assembly. Here's where the other colonies of British North America enter the picture. For in pushing back against the British, the Newfoundland government had reached out to the other British North American governments, asking for their support. And they got it. It was a rare show of intercolonial unity with the various colonies supporting Newfoundland in its assertion that the mother country should not sign an international agreement that so drastically affected the local economy without consulting the local government. In the end, the British conceded. They invited the Premier, Premier Kent, that is, to sit in on the negotiations. Actually, they also later kicked him off the committee, probably for being too difficult. It would not matter. The French and British could not come to an agreement and the conflict over the French shore simmered. But maybe, some have wondered, this sounds exactly like the kind of issue that a wider British North American Union might have been able to help solve. Maybe, if the Canadians came to Newfoundland with solutions, this is the kind of lure that could have enticed Newfoundland into Confederation. Maybe. Thanks for listening to 1867 and all that. We're one island in with one more to go, plus two more continental maritime colonies. Next week, I'll aim to convince you, and I don't think it should be too hard, that Prince Edward Island actually has the most unique and bizarre story of any of the British North American colonies. If you've ever had a really annoying landlord who refused to fix things, 
and kept upping the rent without offering any real improvements in return, who asked you to make upgrades to the property but then didn't compensate you, where you felt that you had no real security and could be evicted at any moment. Well, almost the whole story of Prince Edward Island is that story on steroids. But worse yet, the landlords have a pretty compelling case that they got shafted too. It's a complicated story. There's a lot more to P.E.I. than Anna Green Gables, though she is great too. Okay, until next time, remember there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that. <laughs>